0: I'm going to ask you now if you would turn your attention to Jude, verses 8 through 16. If you're able, if you'd please stand. Jude, verses 8 through 16, this is our third week in Jude's letter. The epistle from Jude, we'll read this morning, beginning in verse 8. This is the word of the Lord. Yet in like manner, these people also... Relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his Showing favoritism to gain advantage. Would you please be seated and would you join me in a word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning again looking at this letter from Jude. And Lord God, we know that these things can be confusing, they can be daunting. They can seem to be random, but we know, our Father, that You have ordered and ordained these words through the mouth of Your prophet Jude. They are God-breathed words, and they are profitable for the man and woman of God, for rebuke, for correction, for teaching, and for training in righteousness. And so we ask our Heavenly Father that you would use these words by your Spirit here as your people are gathered together, that you would use these words to sanctify us, to make us more like your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask that you would do this for your glory and for our good. In His name we ask all of these things. Amen. Well, this morning is the third week that we're looking at Jude's letter. And as we're in the middle part of the letter, we get to the thick or the the meaty part of this epistle, it probably feels like to you that Jude just kind of did a word vomit on the pages that he's writing in, right? It it feels like Jude had a lot of thoughts going through his brain and he just kind of spewed it out onto the pages as he was writing, okay? Okay. And there's a number of reasons it feels like that. I'll remind you, as we said last week, Jude is writing the letter, not the letter that he wanted to write, but he's writing the letter that he felt he had to write. He said it was urgent, it was necessary that he writes these things. And so he gets it out with a little bit of, again, urgency, he pulls it together so that he could warn the church that he writes to. But I would suggest to you this morning as we look at this, the middle part of Jude's letter, that if we are to look at the whole of what Jude describes here, we'll see a word picture that actually comes together very neatly to describe to us the nature of sin. Okay. Whereas last week at the introduction of Jude's letter, we talked about how the church is to deal with false teachers in the church. Today we move to a broader picture concerning the nature and the end, or the result of sin. Okay, The nature and the result of sin. So these are the two things that we're going to deal with today. The nature, and you can see this in the insert in your bulletin. The nature and the end of sin. Now, here's what I like to do. I want to paint a visible word picture of everything that we read in this passage concerning the nature and the result of sin, and I want to step back with you. I'm going to look at the picture, and we could talk about what we see. What is the common thread that runs throughout the passage? Beginning in verse 8, you'll begin seeing that Jude gives us a list of descriptions concerning these people, and this is a list list of descriptions of their own sinful nature. So beginning in verse 8, let's just talk about the things we see. First of all, Jude says that they are dreamers, okay? Dreamers, they they follow their dreams, they're dreamers. He says that they defile the flesh, and he says that they reject authority. See those things in verse 8? Read them in verse 8. Okay. Some of the descriptions Jude gives. He moves on from verse 8 into verse 9. There's a word that he uses three times. He repeats it three times. It's the word blaspheme. Okay. He says of them that they blaspheme. I capitalize it because he uses it three times. He says they blaspheme the glorious beings. He tells a story about Michael and Satan, which everybody's saying, what in the world is going on there? And we'll talk about that. But he speaks about blaspheming there, and then he says they blaspheme all that they do not understand. Did you catch that three times? He repeats the blaspheme. We get to verse 10, and in verse 10 he says all of they, like unreasoning animals, they follow what they understand instinctively. And so in verse 10, he says that they are instinctive. Then verses 11 through 15 are where we begin to see the results of what's happening in, these, in the, the, life, the sinful lifestyles of the people that Jude is describing. And in verses 11 through 15, you hear a number of descriptions. Okay? So verses 11 through 15, he says that they are like Cain, they are like Balaam, and they are like Korah. Now, there's a number of other results that he describes in 11 through 15. He says that uh, like Enoch, and that's from the, book, uh, the first book of Enoch. It's an extra biblical book. He says that they are under judgment and conviction according to God. And then he gives that description in verse 12, the, the very beautiful poetic description. They are like hidden reefs. Uh, They're like waterless clouds. They're like trees, twice dead and uprooted. That's a a beautiful picture. It describes their end, but then at the very end of this passage, in verse 16, he gives another of uh, uh, other descriptions about their nature. In verse 16, he says that they are grumblers. Now, bear with me. I'm filling up the whiteboard, I know. They're grumblers. They are malcontent. They are following their lusts, I, I like um, when you translate, when you literally translate the next phrase, it says something about the words that they use, they're, they are loud mouth boasters, the actual Greek says that they have swollen mouths, okay? So that's, a, that's my favorite description of this whole passage, they have swollen mouths, uh, but they're talking a lot. And then finally, the last thing uh, that he says here is that they are flattering, they are flattering for gain, okay? So you, for a second, you've, you've been taking notes here. You step back and you take a look at this. And as I mentioned at the beginning, you're probably looking at this and saying, okay, none of this has any relationship to the rest of it. It's just a bunch of random things that Jude lists here, problems that he sees in the church. And it just kind of is all put in the same paragraph. But that's not the case. As we step back and look at this, you're actually going to see all of this is related under the umbrella uh, about the nature of sin. And to understand that, I want to give you a very helpful paradigm, okay? So here's the paradigm that we're going to look at the passage, the lens that we're going to look at the passage through this morning. And it's a very simple paradigm, okay? It begins at creation, and here's how it goes. In the beginning, before even the beginning of creation, there was God. Now, if you're again, if you're taking notes, here's a, it's a helpful picture, so write this down. In the beginning, there was God. Okay, God exists in eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect communion. God needed nothing, okay? But he desired an eternity past, at some point in eternity past, to make all of the rest of creation. Okay, so here's creation. And if we understand anything from the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, this is affirmed in the rest of Scripture. We understand that God makes creation beneath Him, and the purpose for creation is very simple, that all of creation would bring Him glory. Okay, Do you know that? Have you recognized that? That the universe and the stars and the sun and the moon and the angels and humanity and the animals and the plants and the mountains and the rivers, that all of this would declare the majesty and the beauty and the authority and the dominion and the mercy and the truth of God. So it is all made for His glory. That's the design of creation. Now what we find in Genesis is the pinnacle of God's creating work is the creation of man, right? God creates man, and he places him in a very unique position in all of creation. He places him over or with authority over creation and beneath himself. What do we mean by that? We mean that beginning in Genesis 1, God says to the man, I have made you above creation, and you are created to fill and subdue the earth. You are created to have authority and dominion over all creation. You have been made, and all of the plants of the field, all of the trees, they are for you. You are to exercise authority over them as my representative to the rest of creation. But, but man isn't created equal with God or over God. Man is made beneath God, okay? That is to be subservient to, uh, to him, to be submissive to him. He's created under a covenant relationship whereby if he obeys the Lord God, he lives. And he lives in beautiful relationship with God the Father, okay? This is the way that creation is explained to us in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Now, listen, to understand the passage this morning, we have to ask the question, if this is the paradigm for understanding Scripture and history and all of humanity, then the important question is what happens at the fall? What happens to this picture at the fall? Okay. After the fall, God still exists, man still exists, creation still exists, they're all there, they all still play a part in the, the rest of the history of humanity, but what happens at the fall? The way the Bible describes what happens at the fall is very simple. Man moves in relationship to God. And what he does at the fall is he moves down here towards creation. And you might be wondering, what are you talking about? Okay. Well, let me explain. The picture in Genesis 3 at the fall of Adam and Eve is that the result of the fall is that man and woman begin to resemble more the creation and resemble less God their Father, okay? Two important things come out of that. First of all, the distinguishing factor between man and creation was the image of God, right? That was the thing that distinguished man from the animals and the beasts of the field. The image of God becomes severely tainted. It's polluted. It's, it is almost lost, you could say, okay? But the second implication of this is that the Bible will now describe sin One of the very helpful descriptions of sin is that sin is when man thinks, acts, reasons in his heart, envisions his own being as a beast of the field, okay, as an animal of creation. Sin is often described in Scripture as an animalistic action, okay, as a thought of the heart, which is an animalistic instinct. I'll give you a few examples The Bible often describes those who are in opposition or rebellion to God as dogs. Have you ever noticed that? It comes up again and again. Goliath says it to David. Am I a dog? Right? And the affirmative is true. David views Goliath as a dog. He's a a rebel, an enemy of God. Okay. We think about Nebuchadnezzar. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? He defies the living God, and what does God do to him? He sends him out. He becomes like a beast of the field. He walks on all four, and he eats of the, the, the... the grass of the field, okay? It's a very visible picture of what's happening in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. Another example, you remember last week, Jude mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah is a visible picture of this, right? What happens at Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot is living there, the two angels come to visit Lot, and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, they surround his house like a pack of wild dogs. Okay, and they come to his door and they demand that he send out these two angels that they might consume them. Okay, if that doesn't scream to you the behavior of animals, I don't know what does. Over and over again, the Word of God describes the sin of man as the behavior of animals, as if we are now like the rest of creation, and the image of God seems to be lost in humanity. Okay, and so we understand the rest of Scripture through this very helpful paradigm. It actually begins to make a lot of sense of the words that Jude now shares with us this morning. Okay, let me point you to a few. First of all, verse 10 is where I love to begin this passage. I think this helps us to understand what Jude is saying to us. In verse 10, Jude said, they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. And if you heard they understand instinctively at first, you might have thought, well, that's a good thing. They understand instinctively. That's not what Jude means, okay? What he actually means is that they are going by their passions. They're going by their lust, their desires, what they want and what they don't want, what they feel. And so he says, they, like unreasoning animals, understand their instincts okay? The word there translated uh, unreasoning is it's this Greek word, okay? A-logos. And you might be sitting there thinking, I feel like I've heard that word before, okay? You've heard part of that word before, the word logos or logos, okay? It's the Greek word that's, that is a really high Greek word. It's often translated as word, but it also can mean logic and reasoning and rationalizing it was a very lofty concept in ancient Greek, okay? When, when Jude puts the alpha at the beginning, it's the Greek version of the opposite of. We, in English, we say un, right? We're, we're not committed, we're uncommitted. It's the very opposite of being committed. This means the, they are the opposite of logos, okay? They are the opposite of rational. They're the opposite of logical. They're the opposite of reasoning. They're the opposite of the Word, literally the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1. They are the opposite of that, and they understand instinctively according to their own passions, lust, desires. Okay. If you understand that's how Jude is describing those who had infiltrated the church at this moment, you begin to see how all these other descriptions they actually fit together pretty perfectly, right? They defile the flesh. Well, there you go. Okay, fits hand in hand with uh, unreasoning animals. They reject authority. What better picture of a being that rejects authority than an animal? Animals reject authority. That's what they do. Horses don't want to be tamed. Dogs won't, don't want to stay inside. I mean, we experience this over and over again. We see it in all of creation, okay? Being grumblers, right? Following their lusts. All of this begins to fit together if we understand that the nature of sin is that humanity begins to look more and more like the animals, less and less like God. If you're having a hard time visualizing this, let me give you another description. Remember how I told you 2 Peter and Jude, they go hand in hand? Okay, 2 Peter, Peter writes the letter. Jude, when he writes his letter, he looks at 2 Peter, he has it on hand, and he uses a number of the phrases that Peter uses in 2 Peter. Listen to how Peter describes sin in 2 Peter. This is what Peter says. He says, but these, like irrational animals... Creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as, as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Their blots and blemishes, reveling in their deception while they feast with you. They have eyes that are full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts that are trained in greed. They are accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. That's Peter's description of the very thing that we're talking about this morning that we see in Jude's letter. Okay, so the, the first characteristic, if you will, according to the, the nature of, of sin, the first characteristic is that they are instinctively animalistic. They're instinctively animalistic. Listen, there's a second thing going on, though, in Jude's description, and we see it in that big old capitalized word that I gave you earlier. Jude speaks about these people blaspheming. And You might be wondering... What's the word blaspheming mean? It's not a word that we use in our common vernacular. We don't say, listen, you stop being rude to me and don't blaspheme me. You don't blaspheme me. Okay, we we don't do that because to blaspheme is a theological phrase. The Greek word blasphemeo is a, a word that means to deal lightly with things that are heavenly. To deal lightly with things that are heavenly. It really means it's a it's a uh, it's a juxtaposition, or is a a lack of clarity, uh, a dealing wrongly with things that ought to be deal, dealt with with reverence. Okay, dealing lightly with things that are heavenly. And you hear how Jude describes these people. He says they blaspheme. First of all, the text says the glorious ones, uh, the glorious beings. There, I think maybe a better translation would be they they blaspheme glorious things. Okay, it's just one word, the word doksa, which means glory. So it literally says they blaspheme glory. They blaspheme glorious things. They deal lightly with glorious things. Later he says they deal lightly with things they do not understand. And then there's that little story about Michael and Satan. Okay, you might have been waiting here we go, we're going to explain this. We're not going to explain this, okay? So if you, if you have questions, uh, if you're wondering what's going on with Satan and Michael, we could talk about it after. We're not going to explain it because it's not pertinent to the understanding of the passage, right? This is an account that happens outside of Scripture in a book called The Assumption of Moses. If you have questions, we could talk about it after, but important for us this morning, Jude says, listen, when Michael was face-to-face with, with Satan, he didn't even blaspheme Satan. That is, he didn't deal delightly With Satan. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. Jude's point is if Michael the angel didn't deal lightly with Satan, then why in the world would we deal lightly with heavenly things? It makes no sense. Okay? Jude says of these people in the church that they blaspheme heavenly things, that they deal lightly with the things of God. And you see how again this all begins to fit together. The fact that they're dreamers, you know what Jude's saying by dreamers is not that they have a dream but it's rather that they're, they're being driven by their own visions, their, their own ideas, their own dreams for the world, what the world should look like, okay? That goes hand in hand with blaspheming the things of God. The rejection of authority goes hand in hand with the blaspheming the things of God. This word, malcontent. In the Greek, it means to blame on fate. You know what that looks like? It looks like a person who says, I mean, this is the way it is, right? It's just the way I was made, okay? That's what, it, that's what it's translated as being malcontent. That goes, again, hand in hand with blaspheming the heavenly things, uh, dealing lightly with the things of God, so on and so forth. The second characteristic we see here that Jude mentions is, again, I'll, I'll put it in my own words, they are blind to the things of God. I know the whiteboard's filling up. If you're in the back, you're like, I can only see from here up. It's okay, just trust me. It says right here, that they are instinctively animalistic and they are blind to the things of God, okay? It's the picture that Jude paints about the nature of sin in this passage. They are instinctively animalistic and they are blind to the things of God. You see what Jude is saying here? It's very simple. Jude is saying that these people are much more like the beasts of the field than they are like the one who created the beasts, okay? They're much more like the dust, Than they are the one who formed the man out of the dust. They're instinctively like the animals. They are blind or unaware to the things of God, the heavenly things, the divine things. And so Jude will critique them on this basis. You see then at the end, as Jude speaks about what is the end, what is the result, this is very fitting. For Jude has made this clear over and over again. Their end, their result is judgment. If you consider Cain, Balaam, and Korah, these are three Old Testament accounts of people who understood like unreasoning animals, and they were blind to the things of God. Think about this. Cain brings an offering to God. It's not the offering that God commanded. It's the offering that he thought God would love. He understood according to his own instinct, and he was blind to the things of God. You think about Balaam, the one the prophet who spoke the revelation of God, but at the end, what did Balaam do? He sold out the people of God for profit. You remember that? So he understood instinctively what he thought was right, and he was blind to the things of God. Korah, you just read, you heard read from Numbers what happens to Korah. Korah said, listen, Moses is a bad leader of the people of God. I'm gonna raise up a rebellion, and we're gonna replace Moses, okay? Korah understood instinctively in his mind what he thought was good, and he was blind to the things of God. He dealt lightly with the anointed of God, right? And we read what just happened to Korah. The earth swallowed him up right into the earth, okay? I love the sound effect. And Jude goes on to describe the outcome, right? He speaks of Enoch and he says they'll be judged, they'll be convicted. He gives these pictures, right? What is, a, what is a hidden reef in the sea? Well, that's what a boat hits and it sinks, okay? So his description is hey, these people among you, they make the boat sink. They are waterless clouds. What's a waterless cloud? Well, it's good for nothing. It's just kind of floating around in space. It's, it is profitable to us for nothing, okay? That's the description he gives. He says they're like a tree that's dug up and it's twice dead. And in staff meeting this week, somebody said, what is a tree that's twice dead? I don't know. I got no idea. I, it dies once. I get that. But twice dead, it's just a, a very visual illustration of who these people are. And he goes on and on and he, he describes to the church result of having these people among them. And so Jude's call then is to expel them, to deal with them, to remove them, to make sure that these things are dealt with in the church, okay? So listen, this is a lot from Jude, but now let me bring it down to the life of the church today, okay? We, last week, there's a number of different examples for the church today where this very thing threatens the very church, the, the very church that we're in. It threatens the American church. Let me give you a few examples. Last week, we talked about how Jude was concerned with the sensuality and the sexuality that was happening in the church. He brought it up last week, and let me tell you, whether they were dealing with homosexuality or adultery or some odd sort of fornication, whatever the case may be that Jude was addressing within the church, the reality of that is what Jude is describing is very much unreasoning animals who instinctively understand what they believe is right and wrong, and they are blind to the things of God. They deal lightly with the truth of the word of God. The description that Jude gave last week of those people is what appears to me to be like a pack of wild wolves. Okay, It's the picture that Jude gives. I was thinking this morning, listen, if anybody ever says to you, here's words that I'm always leery of. If anybody ever says to you, well, I don't think that God would do that. Or I don't think that God would want that. Or you know what? I think that God would approve of, fill in the blank. And if it's disconnected from his word, I always run from that, okay? That is an unreasoning, instinctive understanding of God that is blind to the truth of his revelation. Those words are a red flag for anyone who hears them. Run away from them. Here's another example. The modern conception of marriage in the church, okay? Okay? The modern conception of marriage in the church is this. Marriage is for happiness, and once you cease to be happy, marriage can be done. Okay, That's the overwhelming opinion of the majority of the church in our country today. I'll just, that's a fact, right? And again, you know what that sounds like to me? It sounds like cats and dogs. That's, what, that's the relationship we have with cats and dogs, isn't it? If we feed them two times a day, and we pet them, and we treat them well, they love us. When we cease to do that, they cease to love us and the relationship is broken, okay? That's an animalistic, instinctive understanding of marriage. It's not according to the revelation of God, the truth of his word. Think about greed. What is greed? I would understand greed like this. I would explain it like this. Greed is, I want the things, and I want the things before the other people get the things. I want more of the things, and once the other people get the things, I'm gonna have less of the things, so I gotta get the things before the other people get the things, okay? That's a description of greed. Again, you know what that sounds like? It sounds like a bear who's preparing to hibernate for the winter, okay? He's getting all the things so that he has them because he just might need them, all right? If you've been in the parenting class the last few weeks, you might have heard three weeks ago, Paul Tripp, he gave this interesting description, and you can probably laugh at this. It was a little silly. He said that his brother, Ted Tripp, who is now in the retirement phase of life, is often we'll go to the, in the evening, we'll go to the refrigerator or the freezer to get dessert for him and his wife. And he said he realized one evening as he was getting ice cream for both of them, he was walking back to the living room with these two bowls of ice cream. He realized that he was walking back and he was weighing the bowls of ice cream to see which one had more ice cream in it so he could have it for himself. And he says in a sort of helpful way, he says, listen, he's walking back to the woman who had cared for him the last 40 years, and he is ready to shortchange her out of a scoop of ice cream. Okay? If that isn't the description of greed, that is an unreasoning, instinctive, animalistic tendency that's blind to the things of God, I don't know what is, okay? That's human nature, human nature after the fall. I was thinking about this passage this week and wondering how else does this apply to the life of the church I think it also came up in my mind, many of you probably heard in the news this past week, there's a lot on abortion, okay? Abortion made a lot of headlines this week for the things that are happening or potentially happening in the courts. As I was thinking about the subject this past week, I thought, you know, if we're to understand what abortion is at its base, okay, physically and, and spiritually, abortion has a lot to do with this very picture. It actually, to me, is the epitome of this picture. It's the exact representation of this picture. Now, I want to deal lightly because I know everyone has been impacted by this differently. But let me tell you just my observation of Jude's words and this paradigm concerning the issue of abortion. Abortion, to me, seems like an invention of unreasoning individuals who understand instinctively what they believe is good, who are blind to the things of God who deal lightly with the image of God and with life and with creation, okay? And they defile the flesh and they reject authority and they follow lust and they blame on fate, okay? All of the descriptions that Jude gives here this morning can be true and are true of abortion. And so Jude, as he exhorts the church this morning, I think in fitting fashion would also exhort us to the same thing, to contend with these things and contend for the truth of the gospel. I, I think as, as we anticipate what's about to happen or may happen with abortion in this country, I think there's this moment for the church to step up. Okay? There's this moment for the church to be active because what always happens at moments like this is there's a void created. There will be a void created. And it is incumbent upon the church to step into the void and to declare the truth of the word of God, to present it to the watching world, but also to be active, to be financially active, to be physically active, to be involved in adoption and in foster care, to be supporting young mothers, okay? To be encouraging our neighbors, to offer hope and support for those who are wondering, okay, what's next? How will I deal with this? What are the answers? Where do I go? Is there actually value to life? It is incumbent upon the church to step into the void and declare the truth of God. Okay, That's what Jude would tell us. Now listen, that's all practical application, but let me tell you the hope of the gospel. It's very important. It comes up in Jude's letter next week. This is where we'll end with the letter next week. It's very simple. You and I, we can't restore the image of God in ourselves. Okay, try as we may, the image of God can't be restored in us by our own efforts. Our hearts are sinful and they're inclined to all of this that Jude describes as happening in the church at this moment. The beauty of the gospel is very simple. Okay, God sends his son Jesus. And the way the Bible describes the coming of Jesus is that Jesus Christ comes and he is true man. You see that in scripture? Paul says that he's the second Adam. That's not just a nice way of saying, well, okay, Adam failed, but here comes the the one who will be successful. Okay, It is a very visible picture of the image of God that was given to Adam, lost in the fall, and now Jesus Christ comes and he is true man. He is the image bearer of God and he does all that humanity was created to do and he does it perfectly. He exercises dominion and authority over the creation. We see that in all of his miracles. He is subservient and submissive to the Father. He says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And he is perfect man, both under God the Father and over all of creation. And to us, he describes what it is to be true human. When we look around at the world around us, what we see is human beings who have fallen and who now look like the rest of creation. if we're looking for what it is to be true man and to be true woman, we look to Jesus Christ. Not only was he our example of true humanity, but he indeed was true man. And he went to the cross and he made it possible that the people of God might have the image of man or the image of God restored in them, that we might be elevated to our proper position subservient to God and exercising authority over all creation, that we wouldn't be ruled by animalistic instincts, but we would be ruled by the Spirit, that we wouldn't be blind to the things of God, but that our minds would be enlightened and we would see what is true and what is good and what is right and what God has made, okay? That's what Jesus Christ does in the course of history, reconciling a people unto God the Father that we might be brought near to him. That's the beauty of the gospel. So then, as we think about finishing this letter next week, the call of Jude from the very beginning of the letter is that as the Christian church, we might contend with these things, that we might contend for this, okay? Contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints that as these things infiltrate the church and as these things are brought in and they are held up as being good and right and true, the church would push back against them and would declare the only truth of the living God through Jesus Christ, His Son. That is the call from Jude for you and I today. It is the call through the gospel that brings glory to God And by the Spirit of God, it sanctifies us, that we might be made more and more into the image of God as true men and women, after his own creation, bearing his image. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning, and Lord God, we thank you for your word We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. We know, Lord God, that although we owe obedience unto you, we could never have any fruition of you as our blessedness and our reward apart from a voluntary condescension, a voluntary coming down on your part through your son, Jesus Christ, and a voluntary revelation of yourself through your word. God, our Father, we could never know you. We could never understand what it meant to be true man and true woman. We could never have any concept of righteousness and of your glory and of eternity apart from your revelation. And so we thank you, our Father, that you have revealed yourself through this letter coming from the mouth of Jude, delivered to your people. My prayer this morning, Lord God, and our prayer, is that you would make us able to declare the right from the wrong, to fight for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, to push back against these things that infiltrate the church and come from unreasoning, instinctive inclinations of the heart. And we ask, Lord God, by your spirit, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we would see more of you, that we would not blaspheme your name, but that we would honor and glorify and worship your holy name. We thank you, our Father. We thank you through Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. We ask all of this in his name. Amen. Would you please remain seated as we continue our worship through the giving of tithes and offerings? And as we sing together and worship the Lord,
1: praise the Lord. His mercy is more stronger than darkness, new every morning. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. our mission all knowing, He counts not their son. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. stand as we close praising God singing let your kingdom come God engages our hearts. Who are we? Lord, use us as You want, whatever the test. By grace.
0: One quick reminder, thank you for everyone who helped with the barbecue and bluegrass last week. If you forgot your dish or your utensil, it's out here on the table, and this is the only week it'll be there. So if you don't take it this week, it will go somewhere else, okay? Now receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May you make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you all and give you peace. Amen. Let us go forth to serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You're dismissed. Thank you.